host, Just James, and today we will be talking about everybody's horror gateway drug, the 1990s series, Tales from the Crypt. This is episode 18. Welcome back to Just James Horror Reviews, everybody. Glad you could join me for this episode. Our Carson Winter interview has been pushed to next week, so tune in then. We'll, we'll talk with Carson Winter about Thomas Sagatti. It's going to be a good one. Also, another reminder, if you want to, I'll put some bloopers here at the end of the show after the tail end music, so if you want to stick around for that, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's not. It's extremely frustrating for me because it's a portion of the show where I fucked up and it bothers me. Either way, Tales from the Crypt, let's get into it. So for anyone that doesn't know, Tales from the Crypt was a horror series that came out, it started in 89, it ended kind of mid-90s, and they had seven seasons, each, each season had about... I don't know, we'll just say like five to eight episodes, something like that. But it's a lot like the series that are out now with Black Mirror and what are some of the other ones? There was the ABCs of Horror, The Outer Limits, American Horror Stories. Let's see what else. Lore, Tales from the Dark Side, it's like that. Two Sentence Horror Stories. The VHS franchise, kind of like that. It's sort of like a horror variety show. Really what it is, is it's the Twilight Zone, but just kind of updated. So I would say the way I feel about a lot of the shows now are probably the way that people felt about Tales from the Crypt when it came out, who were big fans of the Twilight Zone. The Twilight Zone is the OG, and I'm talking the old black and white Twilight Zone. If you haven't seen that, I think it's still available on Netflix. It was there for a while where you could go on and watch all the old shows. These shows... When you go back and watch them, they are really the blueprint for everything horror that's out now. Every idea, every character, everything that's been done was done way back in black and white on the Twilight Zone. It's almost unreal, and it's almost kind of disappointing how unoriginal everything is. I guess there's only so much shit that scares people because the Twilight Zone did it all. It really tapped into that cerebral horror, monster horror, body horror, you know space horror, all those things were involved. So anyway, back to Tales from the Crypt. Tales from the Crypt was more, I guess it kind of walked so things like American Horror Story could run because it had violence, it had monsters, it had gore and all this other stuff, but it never took itself too serious. It had a host, which was this mummified, dead, rotting corpse thing, which sounds a lot more graphic than it really is and it would come on and it would introduce you to whatever episode was going to happen and then it would take you out at the end of the episode with some kind of cool rhyming thing or some kind of funny you know phrasing or whatever and then it would laugh and it had this really really catchy theme song and everyone who's seen it will recognize it immediately I'd love to put it on the show but I don't know anything about copyright laws so i'm not gonna but you know the song i'm talking about maybe i'll hum it in the background here or something so anyway growing up it's one of the things that really introduced me to horror before literature or anything else it was that gateway i can remember sneaking into the living room at night and watching it on stolen hbo cable tv you know in my parents living room 
watching these shows. You guys remember that? The old, when everybody would steal cable? I, I hope that doesn't make me seem like a scumbag, but, you know, well, I mean, I couldn't steal it. It was my parents stealing it, so let's, let's be real about it. But when everyone had those little, I don't know what they called them, like jumper boxes or it was a little black box or little bullets or something that they would put into their phone line or you would know a guy that knows a guy that could hook you up with some of the free channels. So, man, back in the day, things were so cool. Anyway, the TV show was created by William M. Gaines, who was a comic book owner who his I think the story was like his dad had passed away in a freak accident he became the instant owner of all these comics he took the comics that were doing the best which was the sci-fi and horror comics he changed the name EC Comics from educational to entertainment comics and just kind of took off from there Tales from the Crypt Weird Science Vault of Horror and Mad Magazines were all titles under this banner and funny enough, Mad Magazine was the only remaining comic that survived a shutdown. I think it was in the 50s or something like that. It was investigated by the Senate because, of course, what's going to happen with all these kids reading all these horror magazines? Well, they're going to want to go out and be zombies and kill people or maniacs or whatever. So, of course, they had to come in and try to censor all that and take it away. And they actually managed to do that to a large extent. And Mad Magazine was sort of the only one that survived. And even they tried to shut that down saying it was some type of uh you know communist uh you know paper or something what whatever magazine or whatever like that. But it didn't happen. He survived and he's who we have to thank for this show coming out. So Tales from the Crypt ran from 1989 to 1996. Again it ran on HBO and I and, and come to think about it, the time that it came out, man, I was I had to be I was either a little before 10 or a little after 10. And that might date me, and that's fine, because if you're listening to this, you're probably around the same age, and you know exactly what Tales from the Crypt is. And the whole first part of this episode is absolutely useless. But that's when I saw that stuff. So I'm sure it's probably when you saw it too. So if you are a stranger to Tales from the Crypt, again, it was just a cool horror anthology show before stuff like that was really out, like again, before The Twilight Zone, but this was something totally different because of the amount of gore, blood, nudity, and, and subject matter, things it was able to do that the Twilight Zone just couldn't back in that time because of, you know, restrictions on what could be put on TV and radio and all that kind of stuff. So there was a ton of famous people in this series throughout its short run. It had everybody from, well, I'll just read you off this super famous, famous person list thing I have here. We have Arnold Schwarzenegger, Billy Zane, that Bobcat dude that talked real funny. I can't remember what his real name was, but they called him Bobcat, Brad Pitt, Brooke Shields, Catherine O'Hare, let's see, Cheech, Corey Feldman, Christopher Reeves, Dan Aykroyd, Daniel, yes, 007 Craig, Don Rickles, oh, and Don Rickles, he was in a really good episode, which was, I don't, I guess, out of character for Don Rickles, maybe not, but he was, he had like a brother that was born on him, you know, think about, you know, almost like a tumor, but it was on his arm, and he would dress it, and he used it as a ventriloquist dummy, I just gave you away the whole episode, but if you haven't seen it, then you're probably not going to go watch it, but you should, really cool episode, anyway, it had, Don Rickles was in there, so it also had this cool thing where it would take famous people and put them in these roles that they might not have otherwise been cast in, so people wanted to be on that show, it's sort of like you know, SVU. It's just one of those shows that's been around that people want to be a part of so they can say, oh yeah, I, I played an episode where I was this or that on that show. So this was kind of the same way with famous people. So let's name drop a little more. We got Demi Moore, Iggy Pop, Isaac fucking Hayes, Joe Pesci, John Stamos, Kirk Douglas, Martin Sheen, fucking Meatloaf, 
slash Steve Buscemi, Tim Curry, Tom Hanks, Travis put some respect on his name, Tritt, Terry Hatcher, and a complete list of others is available. You just got to Google it. There's like 50 other people that are notable on there, but those are the ones that kind of stuck out to me and that I think if you're a 90s kid, you'd probably recognize. So find those episodes. Super cool. So what made this show so great? There was horror movies out around that time, right? Early 90s, great time for horror, right? So why was this show so impactful? Well, for one, like I said, the, the people that were on it, but also it just had good writing. It just had good storytelling. And a lot of the writers that were involved and producers and directors that were involved in these little episodes went on and they're all writers and producers and stuff on all the big name movies that you like now, I promise. Just go back and research some of them and I guarantee you they were involved in Tales from the Crypt in one aspect or the other. So they... Not only did they have good acting, like I said, a lot of name brand actors that I just named, so they could act back then just as well as they do now, but they had great set pieces, great costuming. The music, meh. The music, to me, a lot of times kept that hokey, not-so-serious feel, but it still had, it wasn't canned laughter type stuff. So you got this, acting, writing, directing's off the chain, lighting, cinematography, everything is just on point, and it just hits all cylinders when you're watching it and it really 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 is an enjoyable entertaining experience when you watch one of these shows i almost compare it to seeing something on the stage so if you've ever gone and seen a really good play or something that was done really well on stage or something that had a really impressive setup you know great props and all that it just has a different feel to it you almost feel voyeuristic like you're peeking into someone's life or some other point in time or something like that. And that's kind of what these shows did. And the fact that the cameras weren't high definition and they didn't have all these computer graphics and all this stuff really helped put you in that zone when you were watching this stuff. So the nostalgic feel when you watch it now, you know, all the colors are kind of muted. There's not any of this bright, super LED, high definition, 3D, what the flip ever. You're just right there. It's like sitting on the side of the stage, being in the theater, and seeing all these great costumes and monsters and all this kind of stuff. I don't know. Anyway, I've gone on about it long enough. So, obviously, I can't talk about seven seat. Well, I could, but I'm not going to do it on this show because it would take freaking ever, and who wants to listen to that? So I'm just going to pick a few episodes that really stuck out to me that I can remember just as vividly as I was watching them when I was, I don't know, I guess fucking seven or something, but... You know, which is a little weird now to think about it. I wasn't seven. I don't know. I, I don't know how old I was, but it was close enough. So, a couple of episodes that stuck out to me. I'm gonna pick from seasons two and three, just because season one has got, it's got the Santa Claus episode, right? We all know the Santa Claus episode. It's been beaten to death. It's still classic. I still watch it every Christmas, along with Die Hard and all the other awesome Christmas movies. But I'm gonna skip over that one. So we're gonna start with season two, episode three. Now, every episode that I'm going to talk about is available on YouTube. I don't know what the quality is as far as like what device you're going to watch it on, but if you just watch it on your phone while you're on the subway or in a car doing whatever, it's not going to be as enjoyable if you get to watch it at your home on your super nice TV. So I would find a way to watch these or just go online. The DVDs aren't super expensive or anything, so go online and just buy the whole set. There's only seven seasons. It's not that expensive, and it's just a great collection to have if you don't already have it. But again, all these episodes are available. You can look them up by the title on YouTube and check them all out. They're awesome. They're great. So 
Episode 2. I mean, I'm sorry. Season 2. Episode 3. It's called Cutting Cards. Now, the cast for this one, it's going to have our boy Lance Henriksen in it. And it's also going to have Kevin Teague. I believe that's how you say his name. I'm not sure. It's T-I-G-H-E. Who spells the name like that? Kevin Teague. Kevin Tig he who cares he, he you'll recognize him as soon as you see him he's always a bad guy he looks like a Steven Seagal villain you know but he's he's a guy that always plays the bad guy back in the early 90s he was in Roadhouse I don't know if you're going to remember that but he was in Roadhouse and what's eating Gilbert Grape I don't remember who the hell he was in there but it's in his actor credits so yeah we all know that movie it was produced by Walter Hill who produced Alien vs Predator Prometheus Alien Covenant, Alien Resurrection, you know, you know, we forgive him for that. The Last Man Standing with Bruce Willis. Oh my shit. Do you remember that movie? It's called The Last Man Standing, and it's got Bruce Willis in it, and he played this, I, I don't know who he was, I guess he was a mobster or whatever, but he wore, you know, like the old style suit hat and the suspenders and all that, and he had these two pistols just running, you know, akimbo with those bad boys and just tore everybody up. It this movie flies so under the radar it pisses me off because it's I mean really his character in that movie I mean it's a different breed than Die Hard but it's it's just as badass it was just as badass an action flick as those movies so yeah if you haven't seen that definitely put that one on the list we're not going to cover it because it's not horror on the show anyway but the same guy that produced this was the same guy that produced that so if you if you've seen it let me know in the comments if you thought it was badass from just way off base. So, get comfortable. Let's start this story. It opens up with Reno Crevance. Crevance is the guy's name? Reno Crevance. That's our Lance Henriksen character. And it's going to deal with him and a guy named Sam Forney, which is the other guy. So, it starts out with Reno. He comes into a bar. He's this cowboy-looking dude. He's got the bolo tie, the hat. You know, he's tall and skinny. Very much country midwestern type dude he comes back to one of his old haunts after being in vegas for a year and he hears about sam forney being back at the high rollers table because he comes to the bar and he's asking you still got that no limit table in the back so we immediately get this idea that this dude is a all or nothing gambler you can tell when they tell him that that sam is back at the high rollers table that they don't like each other they instantly establish this relationship and this beef that they have, and you can tell it's serious just by the way they look at each other and their reactions when hearing about the other. So Reno's up at the bar, he's asking for a drink, and this guy, when I say he is cowboyed out, I mean he's got the Texas twang, he chews gum, he's smoking and drinking whiskey all at the same time. He's asking about Sam, and he looks back at the high roller table, he sees Sam sitting back there, and that's our first view of Sam, and he is not cowboyed out however he's wearing a suit he looks like a slick business guy but still hat very much has that kind of midwestern flair to him all right so the bartender as reno's having his drink ask him if he can ask about a rumor that he had heard about how he had swindled i don't know some really exorbitant amount of money from some type of prince over in the middle east on a poker game and then reno very cool is just like it was one hand it wasn't a whole game and Oh man, I can't even describe the character that Reno plays and how cool it is. You'll just have to, this is one that just sticks out for sure. So Reno finishes his story, he finishes his drink, and he beelines right for the high roller table with Sam. He goes back there, and as soon as these two are in the same room together, it's on. They're insulting each other, 
they're already wanting wanting to run the other person out of town and you also get more of an idea of how legendary these two particular gamblers are. I think Sam says something about Reno's bad marriage or something like that or vice versa. And the other one says, well, yeah, well, how'd you explain me winning that Cadillac off of you? And they just go back and forth. You can tell that this thing's been ongoing between the two of them for a really long time. So Reno is easily pissed off. He's got a short fuse. He's got that cowboy temper. Sam knows exactly how to push his buttons and get some riled up. So what do they do? They jump into a card game. And just to show how cool and how high stakes these guys are, Sam wants a card game, and they decide that they're going to play for who gets to stay in town. And whoever loses has to leave town forever, for good, never come back, never be around the other person ever again. Reno steps it up a notch, and he says, you know what, fuck a card game, let's just do a dice roll. It'll all be on the dice. Sam, of course, is not going to back down from anything because they have this thing going with each other. So Reno, he gets two, two die, a pair of dice, whatever, puts them in a cup, shakes them up, throws them down, and they both come up sixes, and he says, boxcars, which I guess means they're fully, which is two sixes. I don't know, because I don't roll dice. But anyway, he says boxcars, and it's just this really cool gambler moment that they do. It's the highest roll you can get, so there's no way to beat it. And Sam, he might look a little nervous, but he's still all in. So he grabs the dice, he rolls them up, pumps them out, and they have the exact same roll, so it's a tie. Well, they get pissed off at each other because neither one of them lost, but neither one of them won. And Reno jumps up, and he's like, I'm tired of this. I don't want to do this, you know, kitty stuff anymore. Let's play for real. Russian roulette. And Sam says, I got a 44 out in my car. So here they go out to the parking lot, really about to play Russian roulette. And even though this sounds hokey when you watch it, these guys do such a good job with these characters that it is all 100% believable. The only thing, the only thing that ruins this episode for me is the music is a little hokey. But again, it just kind of goes with the theme of the show where it doesn't take itself too serious. But these characters do a bang-up job. In this next scene where they're out in the parking lot playing Russian roulette is one of the best scenes. It is the Velveeta cheese of horror anthology scenes for me. It's so tense and done so well and the acting is so good in it. Just watch it. I'd love to know what you think. Do you think this is all that or is it just because I was watching it when I was like five years old and it stuck in my brain because it was hyper-violent and weird and whatever? Who knows? So the two of them meet in the parking lot, and they get Sam's revolver. Sam gets it out, and he's showing him that he's emptying all the rounds out of it. And Reno takes it, pulls all the rounds out, puts one back in, and gives the win a sp- uh, the, the wheel a spin because he doesn't trust that Sam's going to be on the up and up if he's the one that's loading and unloading his own gun. So he takes it, spins it, locks the cylinder into place, and hands it to Sam. Now, they go back and forth, and each time before each person takes a shot... They try to. They have a little bit of a monologue and, and amp each other up. And this is this is where it gets real tense. And this gun is massive. Even though it's a revolver, you can tell if this thing goes off, it is blowing somebody's head off. And it the the sound guy did a really good job because everything about the pistol just sounds really heavy and metallic and thick. And you just know that this thing means business. So Sam has the revolver, and just so you know, it's a six shot revolver. So that's how many chambers we're dealing with but 
if I don't know if you don't know what Russian roulette is, is you put one round into a revolver, you give that sucker a spin, you close it up so you don't know where the round is. Funny enough, you can look inside the chamber of a most revolvers and see where the round is, so you would actually know. But that would ruin the whole show, wouldn't it? So he puts it in there, he closes, uh, gives a spin, and closes it. And the idea is you pull the trigger, and if the bullet goes off, then you lose. And if it doesn't, then you win. And it's just a game of odds, and it's crazy. It was also in that movie, oh, what was it, with Samuel L. Jackson? Was it called 187? Was it called, I think it was, where they play Russian roulette. Oh, if, you're not, if you've not seen that, it's like a crime drama movie. It's called 187. They play Russian roulette, and that's probably the second coolest Russian roulette scene I've probably ever seen. Okay, And I don't count the one, I think they did it in one of the Modern Warfare video games too. Not as cool. Okay, so... Go check out those movies. So Sam takes the revolver, puts it to the side of his head, pulls the trigger, click. Nothing happens. So he's smiling, hands it to Reno. Reno's talking to him about the odds and how he's not scared of shit. And he's going to do it, whatever. He could, you know, I'll take those odds all day. Of course, they're still talking gambling talk. Puts it to the side of his head and click. And this, if for no other reason in this scene, just makes it. But before Reno pulls the trigger on his first shot, he tells Sam to quit talking or whatever because he has to think about it. And Sam's saying, you don't have to think about it, you just have to do it. And that's when he he pulls it and it clicks. And you can see the shock on Sam's face when it just clicks and the round doesn't go off or whatever. And then Reno has this badass monologue. And I wish, I knew, if I wish I could put the monologue in here. Again, I don't know what the copyright laws are. So what if I just give you the monologue? All right, so here we go. I'm going to try some some acting chops here. I will try to perform Lance Henriksen's lines, even though... Okay, it's going to sound like shit, but here we go. All right, so remember, Reno just pulled the trigger. This is twice now that both of them have skated on death, cheated the death bullet that's in the Russian roulette gun, and Lance is still holding the gun to the side of his head, And he says, Thinking's the fun part. Thinking about it. Thinking about what's gonna happen. Listen to that little wheel of fortune click and turn into place when you ease back the hammer. Feeling that metal get warm against your skin. Wondering what it's gonna be like to feel your brains blown out through the side of your head. Wondering what comes after, if anything, or black. Wondering if you're going to scream, or what do you think, Sam? Are you going to scream? Yeah, you will. And scene. All right, so... I apologize for that, if, if that you had to listen to that. But man, it's just such a great monologue. And for this to just be some hokey horror show, to see these two great actors do this, it's awesome. So anyway, he talks all that mad shit to Sam. So what does Sam do? Well, he's a gambler, so he's not about to give up. So he puts the gun on the side of his head and click. Three times now, nothing's gone off. So he starts laughing. Sam hands it back to Reno and... Before this scene takes place, all of a sudden this big Cadillac just pulls up out of nowhere and some obnoxious guy yells something to him, thinking that they're valet out there in the parking lot. Well, 
Reno tells him to piss off, and then Sam runs up next to Reno and points the gun at the guy, and he's just like, you better listen to my friend. And it, in this this one little line here, it almost skates by you, but you understand at this point that this is the relationship that these two guys have. They don't have anything else in their life. All they have is gambling. And now all they have is each other because they're the only two people that are crazy enough to do and take on the stakes that they're willing to take on in gambling. They have reached the top, the pinnacle, and this is all they have left. I guess if you want to compare it to like the Batman and Joker sort of thing, that's kind of where they're at. So even though they hate each other, they really love each other. Hmm. Because he calls him his friend, right? I'm pretty sure that was the point in that line. Because Sam gives him a weird look. Reno cuts no bullshit, though. He just turns around and tells him, if you want to give up now and forfeit, then go ahead and get out of town and whatever. So Reno had his shot. Sam's about to take his shot. Puts the gun on the side of his head and click. It still doesn't go off. And this is a good spot for Sam's character because he just starts... He has this hysterical, psychotic laughter after it happens because he knows that that's the last shot. Remember, it's a six-shot revolver. That was the fifth pull of the trigger. So the last chamber is up, which means it's going to have the bullet in it. And Reno takes the gun from him. And Reno's going to go through with it. This crazy son of a bitch is still going to fire that last cylinder knowing that it's got the round in it. So he has another little speech that he gives about how you know, mark my words and make sure everyone knows that I was going to go through, that I went through with it, that I didn't cower down and that I'm a real gambler and all this kind of stuff. And then pulls the trigger, pow. And what happens? Absolutely nothing. It just clicks. The round doesn't go off. And you would think that Reno's going to be super excited that he's not laying on the ground, you know, sands half ahead. But no, he's pissed off because he thinks he's been cheated. How awesome is that? He gets mad at Sam, and he calls him God a cheater, and he has this funny line where he said, if I wasn't an honest gambler, I never would have found this out. So he thinks he had it rigged from the very beginning, and Sam reminds him, hey, you're the one that took the rounds, you're the one that chose the round you wanted, and you're the one that spun it. But Sam's like, you know, the gun's been sitting in the glove box for a couple of years, the rounds just could have gotten wet or damp or whatever, I don't know what the deal is. So reno still got this, this anger and this hatred for him, and... Sam says, all right, well, let's take this even further. And he says, chop poker. You might be asking yourself, what is chop poker? Because I know I did. Well, it cuts to a scene of the two of them at a dealer table. It's all dark. There's just one light. And in the back, kind of in the shadows, you see two guys and, you know, doctor scrubs. And then a dealer at the center of the table. So the episode moves pretty quick after this. They're at this they're at this small dealer's table. It's in, you know, in a very dark room or whatever. They play a hand, and Sam loses the first hand, and Reno holds up a meat cleaver that's, you know, new and shiny and very, you know, clean looking or whatever, and chops off one of Sam's finger. And Sam gets to pick the finger. So this is all agreed upon. So now we know the chop poker is you get to take a body part every time you lose a hand. So Sam wins. Or I'm sorry, Sam loses the first two hands. He loses two finger, two fingers, and then Reno loses the third hand. Well, Reno's been happy about being the guy who's cutting, but then when he loses that first hand, he's trying to make a deal. He's like, hold on a damn second, and he says some real Texan shit. 
And Sam's like, no way, I'm on a roll now, I got your ass. Chops his finger off, and it just kind of fades after that. So it cuts to what appears to be a mental hospital. And it shows two guys sitting down playing checkers with no arms and no legs. They're just torsos and a head, and you realize it's Sam and Reno. And they're still being the, you, you remember grumpy old men? They're acting like two grumpy old men playing checkers, getting mad at each other. Sam's getting mad because Reno's taking too long. Reno takes forever to move. He moves and still talking shit. He's like, yeah, that's right. You know, that's where I'm at. And then Sam shows him like, well, you just gave me this many points. So Sam wins the game. And, you know, you're thinking, what are they, what are they betting on? What are they betting on now? They've, they've lost everything. They're in a mental hospital, whatever. And when Sam wins, he tells Reno to just shut the hell up and give me the gum. And then they bump their two heads together. So they're literally betting over chewing gum at this point. That's all they have left. And that's the end of the episode. It's just two dudes that have gone mad with a gambling addiction. I mean, I guess you could get as deep into this episode as you want about mental health, gambling addictions, and all this kind of stuff. But it's a fun episode. Those two guys really, really do a a bang-up job. And for some odd reason, that particular episode just stands out to me uh, above a lot of the other ones. I think maybe just because the whole Russian roulette scene. So, All right, so now we're going to move on to episode 14 of season 2. Now this episode, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on. The only reason I put point this one out is because it tells you the birth of the Crypt Keeper. Just Google all this stuff if you don't know what I'm talking about. If you have seen it and you didn't know that this was that episode, it's episode 14. It's called Lower Birth. And birth is spelled B-E-R-T-H. Not like baby birth, but birth like a space when people say give them a wide birth. So I didn't really know the differences in this word until I started taking notes for this episode and it's called lower birth which refers to an attached bed and it's the lower one so I don't know why is that significant in this episode I have no idea other than a guy says oh it looks like you prefer a lower birth when he goes to talk to this carny dude in his uh, CD bedroom so this particular episode was directed by Kevin Yeager who also did Hellraiser Bloodlines. Not really anyone notable in the story other than that. Again, like I said, just wanted to point it out because it's tells you where the Crypt Keeper comes from. It's about a guy named Enoch who's a part of a freak show and you find out that he's dying of something, whether it's cancer or whatever. You just know that he's dying. He lives in a cage. He's beaten, tortured, and he has two faces. So he has his face and then there's like a growth on the side of his head, which is a second face. And it's kind of twisted like... Funny enough, this was the Hellraiser dude, and it's kind of twisted like the dude from Hellraiser. It's got the twisted face on the side. So, wow, I didn't really think about that. So, Enoch's in the cage. He's part of a freak show. He's getting beat by his owner. The guy that owns the the sideshow or the traveling circus or whatever it is, he gets caught up with this guy that sells a lot of just rare stuff. And he has this Egyptian mummy, and he says, hey, I'll let you use this for a cut of the profit. Since you're starting to lose money, you really need something to bring people in. All the things you have now aren't doing it. You're losing money. I hear that this Enoch guy's about to die, so what are you going to do? So he gives him this mummy, and the mummy sits up in the same room but covered by a blanket. We find out that the mummy is a 4,000-year-old mummy named Marana. She's an, she was an Egyptian slave girl, and she was buried alive at 16 for refusing the the pharaoh coming on to her. So that's her story. 
anyway, some other stuff happens, and long story short, Enoch gets loose, he ends up stealing the mummy girl, and he disappears, and a guy gets killed, whatever. So at the end of the episode, the new owner of the circus is questioned by the cops, and they say, hey, we want to show you something a few miles from where their show is set up, they find this underground cave, and they find Enoch. And Enoch is laying in bed with the Egyptian slave girl that was buried at 16, and they're both, well, obviously the the mummy's already dead, but Enoch's laying there dead too. They're both dead, and the guy walks in, he's like holding his nose because it stinks so bad, you can tell they've been living in this cave for the whole year, that's where he disappeared to. And as they walk out, it pans over to the side, and there's this little weird mummy, rotten flesh-looking baby that's cooing and moving its head around and doing whatever. And that's the end of the episode. And so now you know, that's who the Crypt Keeper's parents were. That's the episode. And we're going to move on now to episode number five. It's called Three's a Crowd. Now, Three's a Crowd is one of those that really sticks out to me just because of what happened. And Tales from the Crypt, if you haven't seen it in, I would say, all the episodes, the good guy never wins. There is no such thing as the good guy winning. It's all about consequences of bad people doing bad things or good people getting tricked by bad people and bad stuff happening or, or, you know, just those type of scenarios. But there's never a scenario where the good guy is going to win. And that was another thing that maybe for... 90s kids and stuff. That's why it stands out is because that's so different than everything else that was out there. There was always a hero. You know, you think about all the action movies and everything that was coming out around that time. So it was cool to see this and to see all these, I guess, anti-heroes. You know, these people that were getting one over on another bad guy or the ghost or the zombie or the monster or whatever was killing these people who were bad. So they became the heat, the, you know, de facto hero kind of thing. So Episode 5, Three's a Crowd, it has Gavin O'Hillahy in it, and I know that I'm butchering the hell out of that name, and I apologize, but he's been in a ton of stuff, but the only one that matters is that he was Eric Thoroughbear in Willow. And I'm talking about the Willow that came out way back when, the cool Willow, the real Willow, with uh, Mad Mardigan and all those guys in it. So he was in that, he was the blonde-haired guy with the braids that left... uh, Mad Mardigan in the cage, you know what I'm talking about? So, he was in that. Oh, and when I was looking that up, did you know that Willow was directed by Ron Howard? Because I sure as hell didn't. And it was also partly written by George Lucas. I didn't know that either. Maybe I'm not a big enough George Lucas and Ron Howard fan. I know I love a lot of their stuff, but I didn't realize that. So, with those two guys on it, there's no wonder that Willow was such a good freaking movie. If you're listening to this and you haven't seen that, that's another one to put on your list. So, Write that down. Go see it. I'm sure you can bootleg it somewhere, or you can just go buy it or rent it, whatever. So, anyway, fucking love that movie. Alright, so let's get on with the episode. We start out with a guy. He's drinking in the dark. His name is Richard, and he's smoking at a table. And you can tell he's in a house or something like that, but it's you can tell he's waiting up for somebody. I guess is what I'm trying to say here. So, he's sitting there with a cigarette, and then all of a sudden you hear some keys jingling and all that. Someone comes in, and you find out it's his wife, and she's home from a shopping trip. And we learn that not only was she on a shopping trip, but she was on a shopping trip with another guy. This other guy just so happens to be the best man at his wedding 10 years ago. And she comes in with this real nice, long, very 90s jacket, coat thing that's with the shoulder pads, all the stuff in it. Really nice coat. Richard is 
uh, jealous. You can tell that he's jealous. His character seems very depressed. He doesn't want to be there. Everything she says, every time she smiles, he just seems upset about it because he thinks it's the other guy that's bringing this happiness. And you can just tell this dude is just an alcoholic and just doesn't, there's nothing, he doesn't feel good about himself or anything that he's done. And he's feeling very, what's the word, inept, I guess. She's trying to console him that night and he's drunk and bubbling and crying over himself and says that she's the best thing in his life. And he couldn't stand to lose her, and he doesn't know what would happen if he lost her. And then he goes into this thing about how he's sorry, he can't give her kids. And again, they've been together for 10 years, so you just assume that they've been trying that long. So he has all these things that are just beating him down. And they start kissing, and she's trying to make him feel better, and then the phone rings. And again, this is already at night, and she says, it's Alan. So Alan is the best man. He's the other guy in this story, the one that she went on the shopping trip with. And it's funny that his name is Alan. Is it Paul Allen? Could it be? I don't know, maybe. I don't know when that movie came out. If you don't know the movie I'm talking about, then shame, shame. on you. So, anyway, his name is Alan. So, we cut to the next scene. She gets on the phone with that, or she says, I have to answer this again. Remember, they were laying in the bed kissing, and presumably going to do more than that. And she shuts it all down to get on the phone with Alan. So... Again, he's just constantly getting turned down and feeling like less than whatever. So, cuts to the scene of the next day, and they're all out on this huge yacht with Alan and the guy. Uh, Richard, of course, is just off drinking in the corner somewhere, looking over with Alan and his wife, are just talking and having a good time. She's just enjoying the trip. You know what I mean? Like, you can just see that she's just enjoying this trip. Now, Alan... He's kind of got a little bit of a sleazeball stuff, like he'll touch her leg or do something like that. Well, I take that back. There is a scene where she kisses Alan on the cheek, but it doesn't seem... It's like a brother-sister kiss, you know what I mean? Like, as, as you watching the episode, it doesn't look like anything, but you can tell Richard has just had enough of this shit. He's just not in a state to, where he can deal with anything emotionally. He's a big, fat baby. So, we cut to a scene where they're driving, and Alan actually has a driver. Someone's driving them around. And, and Alan, this is where you kind of get the backstory on everyone, that Alan used to date Della, which is Richard's wife. And he talks about how she's the one that got away. You snooze, you lose, that kind of stuff. And now we understand that they split up. Alan went off to make a shit ton of money, and Richard stayed back in his hometown with Della and became an alcoholic and doesn't have a good-paying job and is just kind of a, a sleazeball. But Della loves him, and she's not worried about that. She just wants the marriage to work and for him to quit drinking. However, he can't get over himself, so Alan does seem a little pushy in, in certain parts of this. There, you know, I guess as you're watching it, you really don't know who to believe, the drunk or the, what the drunk thinks. You know, what, what the drunk thinks about what's going on, or Alan and Della are really just friends that are happy to see each other and help each other out, and she's just happy to have someone to hang out with, it's not a fucking drunk. So they have a scene where Richard wakes up and he hears the two of them talking. I guess they're staying in, uh, looks like a hunting cabin or something like that. It's a big, large house. And Alan's like, hey, you guys stay here and I'll stay the cabin that's just right across the bridge here. And they're all on the same property. Assumably, it's all his. And Richard wakes up in the middle of the night and he can hear the two of them talking downstairs, thinking he's asleep. And they're talking about, I don't know if it's the right time to tell him. I don't think he's ready for it right now. We'll surprise him on 
our anniversary because they're up there for their 10-year anniversary. It's the whole point of why they're up there. And Alan wanted to do this as a gift for his friends to bring him up there because he's got the money. And he said in the beginning that what good is all this money if you can't share it with anyone? I'm alone, so anyone that comes up here to hang out, I'm more than happy to shell out some cash so that they can have a good time. Anyway, here's all this stuff about I don't know if he's ready to hear it. I don't know if we can tell him right now and all that kind of stuff. So start to build this mystery. Are they cheating? So Richard has a couple of different scenes where stuff like this happens. He overhears them talking or whatever, and his paranoia is really starting to ramp up. And one morning when he's digging through some drawers, he finds some lingerie, some newly bought lingerie. And he has this where he's talking to himself about, oh, is this for him? And is this where you guys have been shopping for and all that kind of stuff? So his paranoia ramps up to a thousand after that. He's already had all the secret talks and stuff that he heard. Now he finds this and it's just kind of the nail in the coffin, so to say, for his psychosis to just fucking shoot off into space. Alan and Della come back from, I guess, a walk or something. And Richard, it's first thing in the morning. It's, it's early in the morning because he just wakes up. And Richard goes down, starts drinking, immediately cusses him out and cusses his wife out right there in front of Alan. And Alan goes over to him and pretty much tells him, you're an asshole. And not only does he call him an asshole, but he tells him that his anniversary surprise is tonight. So Richard is freaking out because he's like, tonight it's going to happen. Tonight she's going to leave me. This is when all this is going to take place. And again, me just talking about it doesn't do it justice because in the episode, it's the lighting it's the music, it's the acting, it's the camera angles. It really is a big pot of stew that drags you into this episode and takes you along with this dude just kind of descending into this paranoid madness. So we fast forward to that night. It's anniversary night. This is when it's all going to happen, okay? Alan comes down to the hunting cabin. Richard's inside. He goes inside to get Richard. He says, hey, Della's waiting for you up at the cabin. I came down here to get you. Well, Richard says, hey, come up here for a second. I want to talk to you or whatever. He gets him to come up the stairs and holy shit, Richard has this huge medieval hunting bow thing that was hanging on the wall and he ends up blasting Alan with it, kills Alan. So before he shoots Alan with this thing, I forgot, he gives a great monologue where he's, where this is where you can really see that he's starting to have a mental break and Alan even points it out to him like, Dude, you're, you fucking lost it, man. You're crazy. You know, these guys are friends. And Richard goes into this weird thing where he starts talking about the way Della sounds when she's having an orgasm. And he starts saying she sounds like a wounded animal. And then he starts kind of mimicking a wounded animal sound before he shoots him. It's bizarre. But it works perfect for the scene because this dude, you can tell you're like, this guy has fucking cracked. All right, so Alan's gone, and it cuts to another scene to where Della has come down to the hunting cabin to try to see what's going on. So she opens the door. Of course, it's all the lights are off in there. I think it's windy and kind of storming outside because they're in some coastal place or whatever where the winds get, you know, a tropical breeze kind of stuff. And she comes into the house, and she's asking... You know, what's taking you guys so long? What's going on? And Richard steps out and he's wearing the big long white coat that Alan had bought for Della at the beginning of the episode. And at first it just looks like he's wearing it and it looks like you're going to have this silence of the lambs dancing in the mirror moment because that guy kind of carries that vibe, you know, like 
where that dude's like, I'd fuck me. Like, you think that's about to happen, but he comes out in the coat and he doesn't. He's got clothes on under it. But you notice very subtly that there's blood all over the collar. About the same time you notice it, Della notices it, and she says, where is Alan? And she's looking horrified. Again, props to her, because she also supersells this scene. And he says, of course, cheesy 90s, so he has to say, Alan's hanging around here somewhere. Camera pans over, and there's Alan hanging up on the wall by these giant arrows next to, like, a boar's head or some other, you know, hunting trophy or something like that. So she screams in terror, and she does a great job. 100% believable. It's awesome. It helps sell this whole story. She starts running from him. She locks herself in a bathroom, or not a bathroom, so she locks herself in a bedroom by pushing a dresser in front of it. He slowly walks over there and starts banging his way in the door, saying something crazy about how it's our anniversary, and I'm going to give you what you deserve for our anniversary and all that kind of stuff. He ends up, because he's a huge guy, so uh, he ends up busting into the room, and she's got nowhere else to go. She jumps out of the window, hits the ground. Of course, she can't move. You don't know if her legs are broke or whatever, but she just jumped out of like a two-story window, so yeah, she can't move. She's sitting there just kind of whimpering, and he walks up behind her and ends up strangling her with the tights and lingerie that he had found in that drawer and she's just oh god such an awful scene because you're just like all she wanted to do this whole time was love Richard and try to bring him out of this stink that he's in so she was just a fucking saint this whole time and to see her just get taken out like that you know by him just being crazed and alcoholic and all that kind of stuff it's it's a rough scene if you think too much about it but just on its face pretty entertaining so he chokes her out and he decides he's going to fuck her. What the fuck? This doesn't happen in the episode, but he says, let's go up to Alan's cabin and get that surprise and see if we can't have this child or something like that. Richard is dragging her body from one cabin to the next. And it's not an easy terrain area like the bridge and all that kind of stuff he's he's got across a little bit of some outside area to do all this so it's not easy you see him struggling to pull the weight of her dead body and all this and he takes it up there so he's you know he's still got on this bloody coat he's still got this crazed look in his eye and he just looks like absolute hammered shit gets up to the cabin opens the door you know and he's kind of backing into it because he's having to drag this body and as he opens the door and and puts his foot back into it, the lights click on. And he turns around with this wide-eyed, you know, perfectly acted scene where he turns around, he's wide-eyed, looking super surprised, and it's a fucking surprise party. Oh, my God. And not only a surprise party, but, again, it's their anniversary, but it's a surprise party with all these signs that say, like, congratulations, daddy, and all this kind of stuff. So now we find out that Della was pregnant, and the anniversary surprise was them setting all this up, and his friend setting it up for him because they were so happy for him, you know, because after 10 years, they were finally able to, you know, make a baby and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, the room is just full of people, and they're all wearing, like, party hats and the little things that you blow out that roll out and stuff, the noisemakers and all that. And he is literally sitting there holding this lingerie with her head, you know, with it's around her neck. So he's like holding her head up with that, all hunched over, just looking crazed with blood all over this. You know, he's he's wearing a woman's jacket with blood all over it and holding this body. Oh, man. It is just one of those things where 
I, I don't know what they call that. Is it's like a, a Greek tragedy or something like that. It's, it's that same kind of thing. So that's it. That's that episode. Now we're gonna move on to season three. So season three, episode eight. It's a play on words. Easel kill ya. Easel as in a painting easel. So that's the play on the words. Anyway, it's episode eight. And I again, I picked these episodes just because they're not really the main stories that you hear often when people bring up Tales from the Crypt. There's a lot of episodes that are iconic for different reasons. The Santa Claus episode, the one where the lady is a monster with the big red makeup and she's wearing that big blue and white striped shirt. You know the one I'm talking about. The one where the guy's in the box and it's a monster. I think he's under the stairs or something. But there's a monster in the shipping container that eats people. And what's another good one? The one where the police officer is... They're like in the desert or something and he ends up arresting this speeder or some guy that escaped from prison. I don't remember what the deal was, but they're handcuffed together out in the desert and the cop ends up dying or he kills him and he's having to drag his body around and then he ends up chopping his hand off. So he's, and then he ends up, all I remember about the end of that episode is that dude's getting his eyeball plucked out by a vulture and it's a really cool scene, but there's too many to count. But these, for whatever reason, like I said, they just kind of stick out in my mind. So those are the ones I'm going to bring up, but this will be the last one we cover for this episode. Easel Kill Ya, episode eight. It's directed by John Harrison and it has Tim Roth in it. That's right. You'll recognize him. He played Oswaldo in The Hateful Eight. He played Henry's father in Hardcore Henry. And he was Pumpkin in Pulp Fiction. You remember Pumpkin? He's the dude that tried to take the bad motherfucker wallet. You know what I'm talking about? When they went in the diner? Sure you do. Uh, Also, he played Mr. Orange in Reservoir Dogs, which I had totally forgotten about. But he's in that movie too, so yeah. He's that guy. You'll definitely recognize him. Oh, and he was the dad in Funny Games. Have you seen Funny Games? I haven't seen... I guess there's like a European version, which was the original maybe. I have not seen that one. But I did see the American remake. And as far as I know, scene for scene, they tried to you know, pay homage to the same movie. So I believe it's going to be... I don't think I missed much other than just the characters themselves. But he was the dad, so that's another cool horror movie. Have you seen that one? Check that one out. It's definitely hyper-violence kind of stuff. Not everyone's cup of tea. But the message in the movie, I guess, is pretty notable. So, all right, let's get cranking into this episode. We start out in an art studio where, I'm going to guess, a buyer or something like that is looking around at our main character, Jack, looking at some of his paintings. And she's looking at them, and she just kind of insultingly just says, they're nice. And he says... They're supposed to be ironic. So, you know, you're already getting this idea that this dude is trying to put out something new and fresh. He's trying to put out something that he can sell. And this lady who is his agent or whoever is just not buying it. And she tells him he needs to start drinking again because he actually had some passion when he was drinking, which is a far cry from our last episode. Anyway, she tells him, or, or he says something to her like, well, you said you wanted something new. That's what this is. And she says, well, I said I wanted something new and good. And I was like, ooh, damn, burn. She is burning his ass. And this looks like the lady from the original Beetlejuice. If you remember the scene, I think maybe it's at the end where she's the dead secretary and the football team is standing around talking to her. Maybe that's not the end of the movie. 
But the football team is confused and they don't know they're dead. And she's the secretary lady that's in there. I don't know if it's the same lady, but she sure as hell sounds just like her. So I thought that was kind of weird. Anyway, she's sitting there basically insulting him about his art, telling him he needs to drink again, get some passion in him, all that kind of stuff. And he picks up this hammer that's laying on a table and just bashes her in the head with it, just out of nowhere. And it fades to a scene of him explaining this scenario in Obsessive's anonymous meeting. I don't know what that is. I don't know if that's something that really exists, but he's in there talking about it and it didn't really happen. And everyone's giving him a lot of support about, well, you didn't give in to your impulses, you're... And that's, you know, we're proud of you and all that. So just like a Alcoholics or Drugs Anonymous, that kind of stuff, you know, it's a support group where he can talk about this stuff and he has a lot of support from the people around him because he's unable to do these things on his own. Intrusive thoughts. Maybe that's, maybe that's the word I was looking for. He doesn't give in to what the cool kids would call these days intrusive thoughts. Anyway, as he's leaving, um, a lady from the group comes out and says she wants to go out with him. And of course, he's all moody and depressed and says he's been broke for over a year. He's not sold any paintings. And so to help him out and because she's interested in him, she comes over to his house and wants to sit for a painting. And this whole scene is kind of lame or whatever, doesn't really do a whole lot. And she says she leaves and says that she'll be back tomorrow. That night, while he's trying to paint something in his studio... This music is just blasting from the apartment below him. So he finally has enough. He comes out. He comes out from his apartment. He leans out the window and he starts screaming at this guy to turn the music down. And they're outside of one of those fire escape metal staircase things outside of apartment buildings. So you don't have to do to turn it down. This guy's, you know, just kind of a very typecast, typical character. He's got a leather jacket on, you know, metalhead kind of guy. Goes inside, turns the music off for a few seconds. And our main character is thinking, great, the music's finally down. And as soon as he pokes his head back inside, the metal guy turns the music back up and comes back out and continues to drink beer and just kind of laugh at him. Well, he he leans over to yell at him again. He ends up knocking a flower pot over. The flower pot hits the metal dude. Metal dude falls off the thing, dies, falls to his death, and he's dead right there on the pavement. So what does Jack do? Gets his camera, goes out there, takes a couple of snapshots, paints what was in those pictures, and we see him trying to decide if anybody would ever want to buy something like this. I, I guess for him it's something different, and he just wants to sell something. That's all he cares about. He's broke. He just needs some money. And as he's having all these thoughts, he sees a magazine on the table, and it's got all these photographs of death. And he finds out that there's a guy that buys this type of artwork, and he goes to this dude's studio and tries to sell him the painting. Well, the guy absolutely loves this painting. And the dude lives in a super nice beach house. Everything's, you could tell the dude's like just uber, uber rich. And of course, Jack walks in looking like slum beat up shit trying to sell this painting. And the dude loves it. And he asks him how much. And he says, I don't know, I was thinking too. And the guy says, here's $20,000. And Jack's like, I was meaning like $200. <laughs> and he says, well, just consider it a down payment on your next piece for me. And you can tell that the guy that he's selling it to is a little bit weird as far as he starts telling Jack, like, yeah, there's something dark inside you. And he wants, basically, he wants to exploit that for his art collection. So we cut to Jack back in his studio. He's in there trying to create something new. He's trying to create something for this guy that he can sell to him. And he's just getting pissed because nothing is working. And I think he goes out to get some air or something like that. And he passes by his landlord. And it's this old hag of a lady. She's smoking cigarettes and talking shit to him and whatever. Well, she says, I got to take a bunch of stuff downstairs from that guy that just died 
because I'm going to sell it to try to cover, you know, the rent that I'm not going to get from him for his contract or whatever. And she's like, but you know, I'm old and those stairs are slick. I could break my neck. And he has a funny line where he says, want some help? And it's just the writing like this is just great. Obviously, it's a play, you know, it's, it's ironic. Like, do you want help breaking your neck? Not do you want help moving stuff? You know, it's not like that's a hidden line or anything, but I just do like those little things like that. It, it helps with the hokey, not hokiness, but just the campy feeling of all of it. And he asks the question and it cuts right to a scene of that lady just rolling down the stairs with his silhouette at the top of it. She hits the bottom and these big hedge clippers just stab through her stomach. So he runs down there, he starts taking some pictures of her, and then, boom, jump scare. She jumps up, and she starts trying to strangle him. She's still got these things sticking out of her, and while he's fighting her hand off of him, he points his camera, like, up over his shoulder and snaps another picture of her. I mean, you can tell the dude's kind of twisted. And, and maybe that's the whole point of this story, is, like, he has a dark side, but he's trying to fight it. He's in the Obsessive Anonymous. Again, you could just kind of make that parallel with drugs or addiction or alcohol or whatever it is, you know, he's got these two sides. He's trying to fight these demons. And this other guy really wants to exploit those. So anyway, he takes a picture of this lady and he ends up getting some of her blood. He gets some of her blood in like a jar and then he uses that to help paint the picture. So we fast forward a little bit and he's in his apartment painting this picture and he hears a knock on the door and it is the woman from the support group that he was trying to paint earlier and he hides the painting he hides the little jar of paint blood and all these pictures that he has of these you know people that he's murdered essentially and hides them all in a cabinet somewhere and she comes in and she's like hey haven't seen you in a couple of weeks and he said hey i'm starting to get paid now and i have all this other stuff going on and we find out her this is finally we learn her name is sharon sharon ends up talking to him and for whatever reason, they end up having sex. I, I don't remember how it led into that, but it, it did. And right in the middle of it, out of nowhere, Jack, it flashes to Jack like trying. Well, first it flashes to Jack trying to bang. Like he pictures the woman as the dude that's buying the paintings from him. And then he has some kind of weird psychosis moment. And he's he's got a like an alarm clock or something in his hand. He's going to bash Sharon's head in with it. And she's screaming at him and it snaps him out of it. And, of course, she jumps up and gets all her shit, and she's wanting to leave. And Jack all of a sudden just wants her to just be cool with this, you know, the fact that he was just going to bash her head in. And, I don't know, she gives him some leeway, I guess, because they're in this group together. So she's like, oh, you know, you're troubled, and I think you're stronger than your demons and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, hey, I just need you to wait here with me, or wait here in my apartment, and I'm going to go, and I'll be right back. But I, ha I need you to stay here until I get back. So she said she's going to wait on him for whatever reason. And while she's waiting on him to come back, and he's taking forever, so she just kind of starts snooping around the place. And she ends up finding the pictures and the paint blood. Now, you might not be able to recognize that something is blood, but it shows her this, how they get around that is she smells it, and she just looks disgusted. Obviously, this old blood stank, and she's grossed out by it. She gets the pictures out, and she starts looking at them. That's about the same time that Jack rolls in, so he sees her looking at those dead pictures, and this is the one that finally pushes her over the edge. So she pushes him off of her. She grabs a knife, like, you know, get the hell away from me, whatever. She runs out of the apartment. She's running from, he's chasing her down, like, well, you don't understand, you know, it's just whatever, just fucking kill people or whatever I do. She runs out in the traffic, slap, she gets hit by a car. The next scene shows her in the hospital, and the doctor is telling Jack, 
we don't even know if she's going to make it. And the only chance that she has is by this specialist surgeon. Now, we're flying him in, but he's like, hey, she doesn't have insurance. I don't even know if she's going to be able to pay for this, which is a funny thing to tell someone when you're trying to save someone's life. But he he tells Jack this, and Jack is like, you just tell that guy to get down here and to save her life or whatever, and don't worry about the fucking money. I'm going to make it happen, whatever. Now, this is after he sold the picture of the lady that he pushed down the stairs, and when he was there with the guy that was buying it, and I think they said his name is Mayflower. I don't know if maybe I heard that wrong, but Mayflower or something like that. He, The Mayflower guy, because he tells that guy, like, hey, this is the last painting I'm going to sell you. This is it. That's when he was going to go back to the apartment and be with Sharon forever. But she found the pictures, so he had to try to explain to her whatever, and that's what caused all this. So he's like, again, he's having to go back to this deal with the devil that he made pretty much, and he knows he's got to sell one more painting to get the money, for the surgeon to pay for Sharon's surgery and save her life. So he goes out into the parking lot. He sees some random dude out there, ends up bashing his head in with a tire iron and dragging him into a stairwell and painting on just a nasty piece of cardboard that was just sitting down there at the bottom of the steps. And he's painting it with his blood and he's trying to use his paintbrush, but like the paintbrush won't soak up the blood enough for him to paint with it or whatever. So he throws the brush down and just starts using his finger, runs over to the Mayflower guy, sells him the painting and he comes back to the doctor who was telling me he's going to need money and he's like here's your stinking money whatever and he puts it in his hand and the doc's like you know that'll no longer be necessary unfortunately the surgeon who was here to save his life was just murdered hours ago in the parking lot some madman beat his head in with a tire iron and you know you just spiral like you know, when cameras do zoom in, it's like, like, holy shit, that just happened. Like, you feel exactly what that guy's feeling at that time. And you can see just all his shit fall out of his ass, you know, pretty much when he hears this. And again, this is how all these things end. It's always this tragic Greek tragedy type storytelling. And it just pans out with some police officers come up to him and they're holding up the paintbrush and he's looking through the blinds inside the surgery room where they're covering Sharon up with a blanket and he's staring directly into the camera and the blinds close as if, you know, this is his own personal hell. He's being trapped into whatever. And that's the end of the episode. And that's also the end of this episode. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you're as big a Tales from the Crypt fan as I am. I love that fucking show. It really started it all for me. And next week we're going to have Carson Winter on here, hopefully. Stay tuned. After the ending music here, if you want to hear a couple of bloopers, I don't have a whole lot this time. I think I just recorded straight through. This has been Just James Horror Reviews. I'm your host, Just James. Take care. Easel. Easel. Ah. Fuck. Piss. Shit. Oh, God, it's hotter than fucking here. Okay. Welcome back, everyone. Today we are going to be talking about Tales from the Crypt. Our Carson Winter in. Or, blah, 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 our fucking Carson Winter of the fuck! Fucking shit. Fuck. He's a fucking. A dealer of what? A dealer of bullshit. And goes to a mental hospital. So you see a lady in there mixing some, uh, some mental pills or whatever, some something. I don't know. They're in, they're in some type of mental hospital. I don't know.
Fuck, what am I saying? A mental hospital? She's mixing pills? Shit. Fuck. 